All right, hi, my name is uh, Gabe Lewis. I went on one of the Honduras mission trips. There was a senior high one. Uh, just want to share with some of the stuff that we did. We did evangelizing in schools. Uh, we did some door-to-door evangelizing. We did uh, like a little power-up club thing. And what y'all saw some pictures of is the dump, which I'm going to be sharing about experience that I had when I went there. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start with saying I'm not a very emotional guy. Um, I hate crying. And I, for a long period of time, I've seen crying as almost a sort of weakness I mean, you know it's not bad, but, I mean, come on, guys. We don't want to be crying in front of ladies too much. Uh, (laughs) All right, so uh, we're riding up to the dump. I had Mike Thompson sitting next to me, and Mike looks over, and he goes, Gabe, I'm really hoping that God's going to break your heart. I'm like, sweet. This will be fun. (laughs) So we we finally uh, get to the dump, and I'll tell you what, this place looked like trash. (laughs) (laughs) Haha. <laughs> no. Um, so we get there, and there's, uh, we, we were handing out some hot meals uh, to the people. And I just we're sitting there, we finally get out the meals, and Mike goes, Hey, uh, it's, it's time for uh, y'all to go ahead and start evangelizing. So I, I grabbed my uh, translator and my handy dandy Evangel Cube and w- walked out. And you know, we went up to some groups of people, and I didn't have much success. It was more like, sit there, they listen, and they're like, eh, I don't really need Jesus. Uh, I remember I stopped, I said, Lord, will you use me as your vessel? Um, I'll, I want to be used however you wish. Went up to another group, and I started walking through the Vangicube with the guy, and the guy goes, stop, I, I, don't, I don't want Jesus, leave me alone. And I'm like, oh, this kind of stinks. And I was like, why? And the guy goes, if God really loved me, why would I be li- living here? He's like, and also, if God truly loved me, my best friend who, who used to live here at, at the dump was starving to death, and he ate some of the garbage, and he died. And you hear that, and I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm like, that, that, is, that is crazy. I mean, the guy walks off, and, and I'm trying to keep myself from crying, because I don't like crying. So I walk up to some of the guards, and instead of trying to, you know, boost my spirit or anything, make myself not cry, the guards... Uh, asked me some questions. They're going, hey, um, what do you think of this place? And at, at this point, I'm starting to be very humbled by, to be an American, and there's so much that I have. And I remember the guard saying something that really struck me. He said, no one deserves to live here. And, and that reality hit me. I had to tell my translator and I, the guard, say, I need a moment. Um, I walked off, and a good way to put it, my emotions were compromised. I, I was crying a lot. I'm just sitting there crying, and then uh, we had Mike Thompson walks up up to me, kind of gives me a little pat on the back, uh, and his translator Roberta was there, and you know I'm just sitting there weeping, and got Roberta there, and and as I'm sitting there crying, a man from the garbage walks up to me, and he's trying to say something. Thankfully, because Roberta was there, she was able to translate. The man was asking me, "Why are you crying?" So I hear that. And all I remember is how selfish I, I am. And I'm, I'm telling this guy, why am, why am I blessed to be an American? Why do I have so much? I mean, I can go get food anywhere I want, like McDonald's, actually uh, Chick-fil-A, that'd be better. Um, and it's just, you can get all this stuff and there's people starving. And as I'm telling the man this, he goes, I want to accept Jesus, just randomly. And I'm sitting there, I'm crying. I look up at Roberta. Roberta looks at me and look at the man. He's like, uh, do you know the story of Jesus? The man said, no, could you share it? 
So we, as we're walking him through the Evangel Cube and sharing about the story of Jesus, this man's starting to cry. I'm crying. Roberta's crying. And, you know, we finally finished. The man goes, I want to accept Jesus in my heart. So we pray, and he accepts the Lord. And, you know, I mean, the three amigos, we're all crying. We're all weeping. It, 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 was, it was good. Uh, but right after that, and sit there, and it's like, this is awesome. And then the guy goes, hey, can, can I share with you my testimony of why I'm here? I said, sure. Uh, he said he, he used to live in the major city. He had a job, and he had a wife. And he said that one day he came home, and his wife was sleeping with another man. This angered him so much that he uh, murdered his wife. And scared of punishment or anything like that, he ran away to his father's house. And, and he went and told his father about this story. But his father, out of anything that he could have said, he starts sharing about Jesus' forgiveness and how much Jesus loves him. Um, he said that he was angered in his heart, and he was mad. He was still mad at his wife. And he said that nothing bothered him emotionally. And he said that he ran away to the dump. And he said that as he's working there at the dump, he's telling himself that he's strong in heart and that nothing really bothers him. And he said that he looked over and there was this American who said he looked big and strong who was weeping. And he said as he saw this American crying, it brought him so much uh, to a sense of um, sor- uh, sorrow that he, he prayed and he asked he asked the Lord uh, and said sorry for the first time for ever murdering his wife. And that's when uh, he walked up and he, he wanted to accept Jesus. Uh, after hearing that, I, it was kind of like, I can't believe that someone who hates emotions, hates crying so, so much. Uh, if it wasn't for me crying, this man would not have ever walked up to me and wanted to accept Jesus. Uh, so telling him this, I, I just, such a joy to see this man's heart change and knowing that the Lord used me as, as his vessel and his, his for, wanting to ask for forgiveness from the Lord for murdering his wife is what really changed uh, my view on it. And um, thank you all so much for those who supported me on this trip. Uh, it was a real honor and privilege to get a go. Um, now you, John. <laughs> I hope what you did is you begin to get a feel through the videos and through the testimonies that this church really is committed to worldwide evangelism. We recognize the value of goers, but we also recognize the value of senders. If what you've heard so far has an appeal to you or it's piqued your interest, I hope after the service you'll take time to Go see Wendy Graves. Wendy is our director of missions, and she'll be out in the courtyard, and I know that she would love to talk with you. Uh, I am not Doug, so Doug, our teaching pastor, is in Pennsylvania this morning. He actually, last week, was in Florence, South Carolina for a good part of the week, teaching there, doing um, power-up clubs there, helping them. And then uh, went from there. There was a group there that also was in Denver, but Doug left from there and went up to Pennsylvania. So just ask that you remember he and Jackie, they're with family. Good time for them just to relax 
and uh, get refreshed. Well, I told you where Doug was, but I did not tell you who I am. My name is John Harmling. I am the pastor of shepherding here at the chapel. I wear a lot of hats, I think, but my primary, all of those hats are connected. My primary job is to help folks get and stay connected to the body of Christ, in particular here at Christian Family Chapel. So if you have an interest in that, and um, I hope that you will, that you would get in touch with me, and we'll answer those questions together. Now, I told you um, also about this family, but I want to tell you just a little bit about my family. I am one of eight. I have five brothers, two sisters. All of my siblings are married, and they all have kids, and many of the kids have kids, and some of the kids' kids have kids, and some of the kids' kids' kids have kids. So when we get together, there's somewhere around 65 of us that gather. We do that every year. We have been doing it for over 35 years. It's just a a lot of fun. We end up in Daytona Beach. We rent rooms at a hotel. And then on the uh, first floor, there's a conference room that we have rented out. And on Saturday night, when we have that room, we've tried to get together for dinner. And then on Sunday morning, we gather again for a time of worship. The room is pretty similar to this room. And in fact, my sister Kay has a daughter, Kara, and Kara's husband leads worship. And so we sing and our, our music is similar to this. We have some teaching. I have the privilege of doing that. Sometimes we take the Lord's Supper. Sometimes uh, there'll be folks who are staying at the hotel and they'll see us on Sunday morning and they'll think, well, by golly, that looks like a worship service. And it is. And so we've had on occasion, folks will listen and then they'll make their way in and they'll sit in the back and they'll watch and observe and they'll sing with us and they'll enjoy the time and then afterwards they like to come up to the to the pastor and they'll want to say hello and introduce themselves and so we'll be in the midst of that conversation and somewhere in the midst of that conversation they go this was a family reunion and then they're kind of embarrassed and we just laugh we think it's great doesn't happen often but it has on occasion and it's just a good time now i told you that to tell you how much i love my family I also want you to understand that I recognize, and Kay and I recognize, that we are incredibly blessed to be among a loving and a supportive family. We also recognize that there are people who, for a variety of reasons, maybe don't love their family. Truth be known, if they could, they'd probably exchange their family. As much as I've looked at Scripture and studied it, I can't find anywhere where you can remove blood ties to your family. But what I have found is that you can become part of a new spiritual family through God's gift of new life found in His Son, Jesus Christ. I love that. I told you that because I think it's important to the text we're going to look at this morning. Uh, We've been in Mark's gospel for a long time. Mark is laser-focused. Mark gives you just the essence. Here's Here's the best way I can illustrate it. Is there anybody in here besides me who loves steak? Okay, good. There's a couple of you. I'm one of those. I like the fat to stay on the steak. Just adds flavor, but I... I like to eat the fat, too. So if you know Kay, 
she cuts every bit of the fat off and, you know, a piece this big gets about that big. So she's got it all trimmed down. I think she and Mark are a lot alike. They just kind of give you the essence. There's not a lot there other than these, quote, Jesus encounters that we've been looking at. But for me, I like some of the stories and I like all of that. You remember the old Dragnet show when um, uh, Joe Friday would just say, give me the facts, ma'am, give me the facts. That's kind of how Mark is. He just takes us from one encounter to the other. In fact, if you, if you remember what's gone in a year and a half, we've crammed into three chapters. He's gone from Jesus is in the wilderness. Jesus is at a wedding. Jesus is in Galilee, and he's, he's almost like sprinting from encounter to encounter that when you're done, you just kind of got to go, I got to catch my breath. And that's the essence of what's happening. But in the midst of all of that, there are some things that have happened in this year and a half. And I really want to make sure you are aware of them because it sets the stage for our text this morning. The first thing I want to make sure you are aware of is that Jesus is clearly different. There is something about him that sets him apart from everyone else. His teaching is certainly different. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, uh, we read that Jesus enters into the synagogue very quickly and he begins to teach. And as he's teaching, and you can find the same account in all the other gospels, but as he begins to teach, it says they were amazed. And that's everybody who was in that synagogue listening to him. They were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So what's happening, uh, it's almost like every time Jesus speaks, it's like the old E.F. Hutton commercial. People are listening. They're leaning in to hear what he says because he has this incredible authority about him. The scribes didn't have it. The Pharisees didn't have it. But Jesus did. And so not only are the people listening, but the crowds are increasing. Now, as I was reading through this passage, too, I wanted to give you three passages of Scripture that I think indicate just how quickly the crowds are growing and everything that's happening. As I said to you, the first thing Jesus did almost after leaving the wilderness was start teaching in the synagogue. And so as that happens, he goes in and he starts teaching. And this is what Mark tells us. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. So as he's teaching, people know he's different. They start telling other people. So clearly that happens. And then after that, he makes his way over to Simon Peter's house. And he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and he heals a bunch of other folks. And as you're reading through the scripture, you realize this wasn't a, a just like a, this happened here. It's an all-day event where he's healing people and things are happening. And it's telling us it's the end of the day. And we get this in Luke that all those, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, they brought them to him and they tried to keep him from going away from them. They wanted him to stay right there. They didn't care if he it didn't matter to them. They just were really, really wanting to be around him for the healing, for the teaching, for all those things. And then again, you get this from Mark. The whole city, just the essence of it, the whole city had gathered at the door. 
Now, the crowds are gathering. There's this overwhelming intenseness, we're told, that, that all of these things are happening, and it leads clearly to the third point, which is just that conflict has come. Conflict has come because he's teaching with the divine power. He's, his teaching is different, and so obviously those who are gathered are a bit upset. The best example I can give to you, if you were here a couple weeks ago, Matt talked about the paralytic, and they cut a hole in the ceiling. Do you remember that? And they lowered this gentleman right in front of Jesus. Now, Jesus healed him, but he did something even more important than healing him. Jesus looked at that paralytic and he said, your sins are forgiven. Wow. The scribes and the Pharisees were, knew beyond any doubt that only God, only God could forgive sins. That did not set well with them. That's where the conflict really began to start. And so it's building to a crescendo. In fact, what we talked about last week, after that happened, the scribes and the Pharisees said, he's possessed by Beelzebub. The devil himself has possessed him. And so you have all of this turmoil taking place. And then what kind of threw it over the edge? Do you remember when Jesus healed the gentleman with the withered hand? When did he heal him? Do you remember when? Sabbath, Sunday. Where did he heal him? Synagogue. That was it. And what you get is this. The fair, right after that, the Pharisees went out and immediately they began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. They are going to wipe him out. Now, I'm telling you all that because that leads to the encounter that we're going to look at today. This is a, a new Jesus encounter, and I want to give you a chance, if you will, if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at four verses, 31 through 35. And what we're going to do is sets the kind of table, but there is a concern that's happening, a family's concern. And here's the setting. The family's outside. They gather, and it says, then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him, and they called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. I read that, began to study, and the first thing I thought about, why did his family come? Why, why did they show up? I thought, you know... They're concerned. Remember what we had talked about just a couple weeks ago. When it, we said when his own people, or last week actually, when his own people, and this is his family that it's talking about. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. His family was well aware of all that was transpiring. They've heard him teach. They've seen the miracles. They've also watched the scribes and the Pharisees, and they've watched the conflict elevate. And so they're concerned. Man, he's got off his edge. We've got to get him. We've got to take him home. I was thinking about, again, my own family. I don't know if I'm supposed to confess these things, but my brother Mike is the one that's right above me in age, and... Um, I was bigger than Mike when I was in ninth grade. 
Mike didn't like that. So Mike and I would fight all the time. He just needed me to know that he could whip me, and he did. And he, it was just a common occurrence in our family. He was just waiting for opportunity. His senior year of high school, he's on his way to school, and he gets hit on his motorcycle, a car hit him. And so the family goes to the hospital. I thought, wow, I didn't really care about school at that point. I didn't really care about all the conflict I had had with him. I was concerned, and I went and got him. And I'm, I, we're, we're hoping everything's going to be okay. I, I just knew I needed to be at the hospital. I almost think that's kind of the picture here of what was happening. He's family. Jesus is family. Yeah, we, we think he's different. Because remember at this point, Mary knows he's the son of God. Siblings don't. They just know he's different. And so they're there out of concern. And I, I think as I've been reading this, not just concerned for, for him, they're concerned for them and their well-being. The scribes and the Pharisees have the ability through the long arm of the law, if you will, they could they could do some bad things to the family too. So there's a sense of, we need to get there. We need to get him. We need to bring him home. And so they arrive at the house. The crowds are so big, they can't get in. They don't know what's going to transpire. They don't know what's going to happen to them. They don't know what's going to happen to Jesus. But as I studied, this is what I do know. Every setting, including that one, every setting can be treated like a blank canvas. Every setting has the opportunity to put Christ on full display. The setting that we're we're looking at in Scripture, Jesus was well aware of all that was happening. Family maybe not knowing everything, but he was. Guys, Jesus knew that God can take our concerns, our worries, and he can use them for his great glory. And that's the challenge for us. Will we take these blank canvases that God gives us, and will we use them for his great glory? Now, I hope you're not tired of power up, but I I wanted to tell you one story, because to me, this illustrated this as well as anything. Wes Williams is cooking for us at Power Up Clubs. And he's got to cook for like 200 people. Along with that, Chris Eberhardt is one of the workers in the kitchen, and she's trying to get the kitchen ready. So they both have chores and things that they have to do. They're right outside. They're coming to church, and they're over on Hartley. And Stan Cooper, one of our members, is riding his bike, and there's an a uneven part in the sidewalk, and he ended up in the ditch. And he, got, he hurt himself a little bit, hurt his knee. Did some, he couldn't get out of the ditch. Wes could have said, hey, Stan, I hope you're better. I hope you'll be okay, but I got to keep moving. I got to get to church. These folks are counting on me. Chris could have said the same thing, but together they stopped. People gathered. They got him out. They ended up coming to work. It threw some things out of kilter. But what was really cool is they said, no, we are going to put Christ on full display. This blank canvas that's in front of us, we can choose to go buy it, but we won't. 
We're going to stay and we're going to help and we're going to do with whatever happens. I think what happened when Jesus saw all those people in that room, when he saw his disciples in front of him, saw all those other, heard the question, he said, I am going to put Christ on. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to make sure I'm lifted up here. My father in heaven's lifted up. And so he sees this blank canvas and he's going to fill it with the truth of his word. And it leads to a new encounter. And so as they ask, where is your family? This is how Jesus responds. Answering them, he said, well, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. In this new encounter, Jesus is in no way trying to trick that group. This isn't a trick question. He's not trying to deceive them. He's not trying to make them think, well, this isn't family. Clearly, Jesus knows who his blood family is. If you read the Gospels in their entirety, you realize that when Jesus was on the cross, he looked at John and he said, John, behold your mother. You've got to take care of her. And he looked at his mother and he said, Mary, behold your mom, behold your son. He understood the value of family. And so he's not lowering the bar. In fact, he's raising the bar. He's using everything he can to make sure that family is raised. But he's going to teach a transcendent spiritual truth. And this is the truth. Folks, even if we love and we value our family, we are called, called to love God even more. I love my family. I love my siblings. I love their wives. I love my wife, Kay. I love Jeremy. I love Jeff. I love Jessica. I love Jeff's wife, Colleen. I really do. But I want them to understand I love God more. And what I hope is that when they see how much I love him, that that will overflow and spill out and influence them. What I recognize for maybe most of us in that room, maybe our kids are good kids. And so it's not hard to love them well. But I also recognize there are those who are saying, I'm going to love God more than family. It's going to be tough. What do you do with that, that son or daughter who says, yeah, I, I'm claiming the name Christ, but this person I want to know, I know they're not a believer, but I'm, I'm going to try to raise them up. Will you speak truth? Will you ignore it? What will you do? What do you do to that son or daughter or that family member who's living in unrepentant sin? Will you speak the truth in love? Will your conversation be full of grace even when it's seasoned with salt? Will they clearly know that you love God most of all? Jesus is not saying family's not important. But what Jesus is doing is saying there's an order to it. God first. Others second. You last. 
And so he's pointing that out and he's pushing that. And he's not, again, what he's saying to them is that his loyalty to God, loyalty to God is above his loyalty to family. Those who are gathered in that room, they're watching the encounter. And clearly, he's not going to lower the bar of family. In fact, he's going to raise it. And he's going to say to them that every encounter, every encounter provides an opportunity for us to elevate Christ. We're to pursue him. Pursue him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And if we will pursue him, we'll let the love overflow and influence others. Once again, I think Jesus has made this, this moment in that room, a God moment. He looks around, he identifies his disciples. He knows his parents are outside and what he's clearly telling them is that there's a choice to be made. Well, here's what he says. Here's the decision. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is simply laying down the gauntlet. Make no mistake, what he's doing is he's telling them, my family, my spiritual family, is different than flesh and blood. My spiritual family is most important, more than just a physical family. And he's telling them to be in my family. It's going to require a choice. Now, I want to stop right here. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, I, I haven't made that decision. I can tell you, I know I'm not in God's family. And I'm going to ask you to please, please, please don't put that off. Come see me afterwards. Come see one of our staff. Somebody will be here after. And we'd love to talk to you because that's going to be the most important decision of all. That's the decision you have to make first to be in God's spiritual family before all the other decisions begin to make sense. This doing God's will, all of those kind of things. If you make that decision, as you begin to grow in your faith, you begin to understand some things that you're going to have to make decisions often. Leaning in toward God or pushing away from Him is going to require multiple, multiple daily decisions. Every single day, we face new choices. Will we lean in or will we push away? So I read this in the text and I think, what is, what's the takeaway for us? What are we going to do with this? We've made a choice to be in God's family, but I walk out of here. Am I changed? Is there anything happening different? I want to give you some realities of being in God's family. I hope that they will speak to you. I hope that they'll encourage you as you walk out, but I hope also they'll challenge you. The first reality is that God's family is absolutely immense, and it's still growing. You are part of a family that is so, so much bigger than just a physical family. When I was making this point, I thought, well, I'm going to figure out how many churches are in Jacksonville. So I Googled it. 
I was at the very end of the B's, right at the beginning of the C's, and I had hit 100 churches, and I thought, I'm done with this. I, I don't want to count anymore. I don't, it's not that important. So I, let me do it this way. How many members does Christian Family Chapel have? Do you know how many folks who have said, this is what I want to call my home? Do you know how many members we have? How many? Oh, no, not 2,000, not quite. 1,100. I thought, wow, that's, that's huge. And we're just one church. We're, we're one of, obviously, hundreds, probably thousands of churches in our area. The body of Christ is immense. The scripture says to us, if you go to Hebrews, the 11th chapter, there's this roll call of faith where he begins to list all of the, the faithful. And then he even takes time in the chapter to say, I can't list them all. I don't have time. I'd be out of time if I did that. And then he continues the thought in chapter 12, and he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, the point is that it's huge. Our spiritual family is immense, and it's growing. Every time someone else comes to Christ, the family gets bigger. Last week, sorry, a week ago, 1,400 kids heard the gospel. Will all of them come to know Christ? Maybe. Don't know. But I know some did. Some in Denver heard it. Some in Florence, South Carolina heard it. Some in Atlanta heard it. And that's just our church. There are people who are hearing the gospel all the time. Not only is our family immense, folks, but it is growing all the time. Rejoice in that. Give thanks for that because honestly, in this world today, it's getting harder and harder. Understand though that you are a part, as we said this morning, of a global family. Don't lose sight of that. Not only is it immense and growing, our family plays by different rules. Culture would have us believe that it's me first, my happiness. It's all about me. That is so counterculture to the gospel of Christ. What we're taught, God first, others second, self last. That runs so opposite of what you go through every single day. As Doug has been saying to us over and over, it's countercultural. I wish I'd have included this in the notes, but here are three things, I think, just under that point alone. Here's one of them. I want to seek, here's what makes us different. I seek the praise of Jesus more than I seek the praise of men. I'm living for his praise, not what people say to me. I only really want him to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I'm living for. Second, I want to trust the wisdom of his words more than the wisdom of man. That means I need to be in his word. I need to be studying his word. I need to learn his word. Because I want to trust that wisdom more than what someone else will tell me. I want to abide with him. I want to spend time with him. So that means there's some things I'll probably give up. Because it's more important to me to be with a family of faith. To be spending time with others who are pointing to and looking at and studying the life of Christ and what it's trying to teach us. 
our new spiritual family has incredible power. We operate, folks, with supernatural power. We sing this, and we don't make up these words. They came right from Scripture. The Scripture declares that we have the exact same power that raised Jesus from the dead, now living in us. It just blows me away. That supernatural power is not limited to strength beyond the ordinary. It is that supernatural power in the presence of the Holy Spirit that's dwelling in us that allows us just simply to say, Lord, I can't. But because you live in me, now we can. So when I'm impatient, I can be patient. When I don't think I can do any more, I can say, Lord, I can do this and your strength, and your power. We have the ability to join with other Christ followers. That just blows me away. That is absolutely supernatural power. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Guys, what he's telling us there is not that that prayer should be a means of, of getting God to do our will on earth. But when we pray like that, what we're trying to do is get God's will done on this earth. And he doesn't stop with that. The very next part of that verse, is, and it's, that's John 14, 13, he said, the question is why? So that the Father will be glorified in the Son, so that God will be lifted up, so that he'll be on full display. The way that played out in Power Up was incredible. Every night when the kids would come back into the, in, into the auditorium and we'd pray as a huge group of 200 kids, it was a chance to say, here's what God's doing. Here's how God has acted. Here's how God's honoring. And what was happening is not just one person lifting God up, but hundreds of people lifting him up. His glory was put on full display. Our family must function with intentionality. This is a decision we make. That's, well, here's how I'd say that. When Kay and I first married, we decided if the Lord would honor us with children, we would be intentional with our family. We would raise them according to God's word. There was an intentionality about it. it we were just going to say, we're going to commit to doing life to bring God or glory and honor. I, I, I want to show you a video because I think it, it, it puts this out there better than anything I could say. So I'm going to ask if you guys would, would you just show that video for me? On December 26, 2016, day after Christmas, John and I were headed out to the town center that morning to um, exchange some stuff we'd received for Christmas. And we were there for a while, and then we were heading to the Avenues Mall to have lunch with our kids who were in town. So while we were there, John and Colton went off to go get lunch on one side, and I was sitting at the table with the other kids and my grandson. And um, I received a phone call from Colton, and he said, Mommy, 
you need to come over here right now. And I said, why? And he said, just come right now. I headed over there to see a, a group of people around him, and he was sitting in a chair. And um, people were very helpful. I could, I could tell by looking at him that his left side was um, somewhat looked like it was limp and paralyzed, and they had set him down, and they had called an emergency team to come. I can remember it was the day after Christmas. I got a text, and I told Tom, I said, John has had a stroke, and of course we looked at one another thinking, John, Prince, no, it must be John's dad. When he, he was actually in the store and he came out, because I was feeding Reagan, and he said, have you not seen your phone? And I said, no, why? And there was a long text from Julie that they were on their way and that he'd had a heart attack or a stroke. They didn't know at the moment. And I immediately, you have that feeling of, this can't be happening. When I called her, of course, Julie has always been the one that is serving everybody else's needs. If you know Julie, and I um, said, do you need me to come? Because I really didn't quite understand exactly what was going on. She goes, no, 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 we're fine, we're fine. I thought, no, that's, you're not fine. And so um, I just wanted to be with her and make sure that she was okay. And because um, and we, we didn't know what was gonna happen and we got there as soon as we could just to put our arms around Julie and just sit and pray with her. I, I can't even explain the blessing it was to have them there. I never, ever felt alone. I, I can't only explain it that the peace I felt was from God and perhaps it was through the family group and the people that are around me that we, we were laughing, we were talking, um, we were praying, we even actually sang in the, in the waiting room. So the good news is the surgery um, was successful. I had a uh, clot in my right cerebral artery that uh, the neurosurgeon was able to clear. Immediately after the stroke, um, I spent about a week downtown at Baptist in the neuro ICU, and uh, we were just really blessed by, to be surrounded by so many friends and loved ones and a lot of people from our family group that came along and um, laughed with us, prayed with us, and were just there to support us. Our family group meets every other Sunday and we meet in each other's homes. And as we were sitting down, of course, John and Julie were not there. And um, we really felt that, you know, we've all been praying for them so well. But my thought was, as it came to me, it was that, what can we do? Let's, let's do something to encourage him. Because I'm very close to Julie and know her well, um, I was given the task of delivering the news that we would like to do a work day for them, knowing that um, John and Julie have a very hard time um, accepting help. And they, I knew that she wouldn't need anything or say she didn't need anything, but I knew there were things that needed to be done just from casual conversation with her. Janet Aiken came to me on, I think it was around Thursday, and said, I'm gonna tell you something and you're gonna listen. And when Janet talks, I listen. And I said, I just need you to listen for a minute while I say this. And I told her what the group wanted to do and that we wanted to spend a day at their house and that I needed her to give me a list. And she immediately started to talk. And I said, no, no, I asked you to wait. And, and so she, um, she waited and she, she went on and on about how she didn't 
She didn't think it was necessary and that John wasn't gonna like it. And I said, well, you go home and talk to John about it and then I'll come over later and get a list from you. And so I went the next day, or she came over here, I don't remember, and um, asked her if she had talked to John and what John's response was. And she told me that he had cried when he found out that we wanted to do that. And the really cool part about it was how quickly this whole thing came about. Because as soon as, as Lisa mentioned, hey, let's go do something, everybody's schedule was like, oh yeah, let's go do this, and this day works for us. And, you know, just to be able to do something meaningful to them, you know, trim trees, do yard work, do some stuff inside to help them. Well, while John was on the men to keep them from having to worry about doing those kind of things. Because of family groups and how long we've been involved in, in a family group, we've been on the giving side, but it's very humbling to be on the receiving side. And five years ago, we were on the receiving side and we're very humbled by it. And it's real easy to resist that, no, I, we're good and you're not good. That's what family group is all about, is is ministering and being the hands and feet of Jesus to those that are going into the storm or coming out of the storm. And so it was a blessing and an honor for us to be able to serve John and Julie in a way that was real, practical. It wasn't, didn't seem to be super, super spiritual, but it was a way that they needed help and we were able to meet that need. So we're doing well now and we're thankful for all the prayers and support from everyone. But during those really difficult times and there were some dark days, there were some times there were harder days and there were good days. And um, the love and the support of our group and you know our, our church body as a whole, I can't put words, I cannot express um, how much it meant to us and how much it still means to us today. There's an intentionality about what we do in doing life together. There's a final truth about being in a spiritual family. It's strengthened by fellowship, not isolation. The reality is if there's 1,100 of us, we're too big to be able to effectively minister to each one. That's why we do family groups. That's why we ask you to, to help us be a part of that. As I read the passage of Scripture, Jesus said, you want to know what my father or who my brothers and sisters are? It's the ones doing the Father's will. I would sum it up like this. Guys, we're called to suffer, serve, and savor life together. 2014 for Kay and I was a... Sorry. Well, I don't know what I did, but you know what? 2014 was hard for us. In September, my dad passed away. Had the privilege of doing that service. In November, Kay's mom passed away. Had the privilege of doing that service, but it was hard. And I remember looking out in that sanctuary in St. Pete, Florida, and there was Tony and Lisa Anderson letting us know that we didn't have to go through that on our own. There's another group that meets here. One of the folks in their group needed extensive work done on their house. That team got together and painted that house, just serving together. And just a cool thing, this afternoon, you know who the jumbo shrimp are, they play today, our home baseball team. 
little Cole Hendrick, Hartfield, Kevin and Jamie's son Cole is throwing out the first pitch today at 3 o'clock. His family group is going to, the family groups are all going to be there to just say, let's just enjoy the moment together. I just think that is so cool. That's what suffering, serving, and savoring life together is all about. I want to ask you today before we go, are you in God's spiritual family? If not, give us a chance to talk to you about that. But if you are, I hope you're a contributing member of the family. I understand there's going to be times where you're going to be a consumer. But I hope, I hope and I pray that you'll understand the value and the worth of being in a spiritual family and that you'll be a contributor to that family. Let's pray together. Father, so grateful for this family of faith that we call Christian Family Chapel. What a blessing, Lord, you have given us. Father, I pray that we would love you most and that would influence everything we do. Lord, thank you for the gift of including us in your spiritual family. We give thanks to you this day in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.